Greetings. You have entered Lorraine Lou's cave. Deep in the ground, the universal unconscious lies waiting to expose its secrets. The cave has, from the inception of humankind, enticed, mesmerized. It has been protective shelter, spiritual temple, keeper of sacred images, rituals, and lastly, burial chamber. On this and the following two podcasts, I will recount the experience of the vision quest. At a point in my life after the divorce and my daughter's making her own way, I sold my home and left that world behind. I decided to go on a vision quest as preparation for the path I was to take. In such a ritual, a person separates herself from the everyday life fasts and purifies herself, seeking a spiritual connection and hopefully a vision that will guide her on her path. It's a powerful experience that attracts psychic forces to oneself. You let go of your tenacious grip on life and open yourself up to this force. Afterward, what you have learned will take time to unfold. Your perception of life and your role in it completely changes. The Vision Quest by La Reine Saint-Pierre On the seat next to her are a couple of books she picked up at the library. Céline's Journey to the End of Night, then some interviews of poets about their craft, published by the New York Quarterly. This is the extent of her planning for the camping trip. She's heading north up Route 4 to Livermore Falls and then on. It's been three days since she moved out of the house It's memories of married life, raising a daughter and the divorce, and she's still in mild shock. The veil had lifted, exposing a painful reality, and she didn't like what she saw. Friends and acquaintances seemed a million miles from her, still in the old way of being. Everything they said belonged to a past she no longer inhabited. Throughout spring... When she knew she had a sure buyer and steps were being taken, she began to look at maps and drive to different areas of Maine, trying to find a a likely area to move to. She's been across America, but she doesn't know her own state well. The wilderness up north, the great Allagash, and Baxter State Park are a fantasy land she's always heard of. She found a log cabin in the western mountains, a small secluded house presently occupied till the end of the month. So she's camping out till then. She's not sure what attracted her to the cabin, except that there were good vibrations. She considers it a stroke of luck finding it.
She stops at Lake Wasukeg and parks her red sports car Felinius at the rest area near some picnic tables. Alone, she strips down, puts on her swimsuit, and bathes in the lake. Afterwards, she makes a supper of French bread with radishes, scallions, and some cheese. A family comes to the picnic area and chooses a table far from her. Good. The solitude feels right, even necessary. She's decided to spend the next two weeks exploring Maine. There must have been a million crickets at her campsite off the highway outside of Monson, but peaceful and secluded. When fixing breakfast, she realizes she's poorly equipped to camp out. A last-minute decision. She has no sharp knife or utensils and has to use part of a nylon stocking as coffee filter. On to Greenville, the last outpost of civilization, to stock up on equipment. Every other building is a great wilderness outfitter. Two banks refuse to cash her check, but the AMP does so readily. It takes a while to get all the things she needs, and she leaves Greenville at 1.30 in the afternoon without coffee filters. The great northern wilderness and Lily Bay are up ahead. She spends the night at a gorgeous spot across from the water, but she has difficulty falling asleep when it gets dark, and there is nothing else to do by 8 p.m. She spends hours tossing and turning. On this night, something comes to her tent. She can hear its rhythmic panting. By morning, she's gotten into the camping mode, losing her city ways grudgingly. Breakfast consists of scrambled eggs, burnt toast, and coffee, all delicious. Afterwards, she heads for Cocaggio, traveling a private logging road, dirt wet down to control dust. Felinus gets kegged with half inch of mud clear up to the windows. The road comes to an end at a forest gatehouse where a woman takes down her plate number and asks where she is going and how long she's, she plans to stay. The woman wants to know where she's from. They talk for a while and she outlines her plans. She had wanted to, to head northwest and on to the Garnet de Bouilly public land area. But the old woman tells her most of the trails on her map are privately owned logging roads and she won't be able to gain access to them. She will have to take the northeast route where she can visit Baxter State Park for the day. The old woman writes it down in her logbook. That's good. I'm not going to die in the wilderness unknown to the world. Baxter State Park is a long ride through rough country, but beautiful. The southern part is dominated by Katahdin. Every turn in the road brings her face to face with that mountain. And there are several camping areas. When she heads up the narrow dirt trail, it becomes wilder, unspoiled. That's when it happens. She's going along about 15 miles an hour when she sees a bear scamper across the road in front of her. A black bear. 
Jesus, I wish there was someone here with me to share this experience. Surprisingly, she's not frightened. Rather, she would like to be a bear, too, to go tumbling and running in the woods with it. Her Hollywood image was of creatures who stood on hind legs and roared menacingly, not this shaggy black bear scampering on all fours. This is surely an omen. When she first started writing, she had terrifying dreams about a bear who came crashing through her safe middle-class life wreaking havoc, its powerful claws tearing into walls, destroying all in its path. No sooner has she parted with it when she comes around the bend and sees a doe and her young one in the middle of the road. The fawn takes off, but Mother stays to examine her. It's as if I've stepped into another world. On leaving the park, she speaks to the ranger, who estimates the bear's age at two or three years, a young buck. It's rare to spot these bears, he tells her. Come evening, she camps about three miles down an old logging road, a short way from Patton, off Route 11. She has an eerie feeling being there. Psychic forces are at work. She takes a walk on an overgrown, abandoned road, finds some raspberries, eats several handfuls, then runs for half a mile. After she set up camp and had supper, she sits on a rock thinking about the underworld and how hard she works to keep it down, to ignore it. But still, it is with her and pierces her reality when she least expects it. She thinks about psychic energy. She can feel its presence in the rocks. It occurs to her that her mind is obsessed with relationship that her life revolves around relationship, and perhaps this is so because the world is too fearful otherwise. It holds unlimited possibilities. Chaos. It's been a long driving day. She crawls into her tent and falls asleep in short time, but is awakened in the middle of the night, freezing. She tries to rearrange her sleeping bag, puts on her chamois shirt and wool socks, and then the damn tent falls on her, full of dew. Her sleeping bag and even her clothes get wet. She gets up and goes to sleep in the car. A scary dream awakens her. She's pursued by people whose faces are wrapped in gauze, and she's asked for identification her driver's license with a picture, but she can't find a picture with herself without others in it. In the morning, she discovers that the car has a flat tire and the battery is dead. She thinks to walk to the highway, but for some reason, she's a bit apprehensive. Once there, she decides if she has no luck after flagging down five cars, she'll go back and maybe there'll be enough juice in the battery to get it going. Number four car stops. A man with soft, curly gray hair greets her. 
They look at each other for a moment. He's okay. My car's parked a couple of miles down this road, she explains. I've got a flat tire and my battery's dead. He nods. I'll go take a look. Reaching over to pop open the door on the passenger side of his automobile, he motions for her to get in. Once the tire is changed and the car is running, he hesitates, as if not wanting to part with her. She tries to explain the trip to him, but her explanation lacks clarity. It doesn't matter, because she can see he, cannot, he has understood the nature of the adventure she's embarked upon, and he wants to share a small part of it. The service he's rendered will suffice him before he re-enters the everyday world of life in Patton. It's back to Route 11 pouring rain. She heads past Eagle Lake toward Fort Kent and Madawaska to the very tip of the main border, then down through French country, Presqu'Isle, Frenchville, Van Buren. The terrain is very different here, miles and miles of flat land, potato fields, and sugar beets. She listens to French songs from the Quebec station just over the border. The farmhouses are grade two- and three-story structures. She loves the large open porches and the half-buried potato barns. When her daughter came back from college, there was a strange look on her face when she arrived at the house. You gotta get out of here, Mom, she told her in an ominous tone. And so she's left her dead house. She's not well. It started in the morning. She feels dizzy, weak, stomach is sick. She decides to spend the night at a rest area and information station in Holton. She doesn't want to be far from help if she needs it. She awakes the next morning not feeling any better. The camper next to her moves back and forth. At first she thinks it's her dizziness, but no, it's the wind blowing. What a job trying to, to make coffee with a propane stove. It takes forever getting the water up to boil. She spends the day in the parked car reading some poetry essays, Levitoff and Rukeyser and some of Céline's book, a tragic, comic, stream-of-consciousness story from a rough-and-tumble guy. The Levitoff article was written in the 60s. She takes a righteous stand, belittling the rich kids and their experience at the Ivy League school where she taught. She was more impressed with Rukeyser. Still, she finds very little of substance concerning craft in both interviews. Before she knew very much about poetry, she used to read Whitman, Dickinson, Paul, Bly. There was no plan to it, even later when she read every post she heard of. Had someone asked, have you learned anything from it? She would have said no. Perhaps there is a subconscious plan. She finds that a poem writes itself if it is true. But how to arrive at truth? For her, it is learning to listen, to be quiet. (laughs) 
During her year of waiting for the house to sell, she realized that from the beginning, what most interested her were the words. It was her reason for entering college. She had wanted to learn the words to speak her soul, and more than that, to free her from the constraints the identity imposed on her. She had wanted to master those specific words that are used to imprison and shackle the defenseless. And she's done that. She realizes this isn't enough. She wants to be able to touch people with her words. She fixes herself a big breakfast the next morning with a pot of coffee, some stir-fried carrots, onions, potatoes, and a couple of toasted egg sandwiches with cheese. A sure cure for what ails her. I swear, on my deathbed, I will be eating five-course meals. Afterwards, she takes out some fruit from her for her midday snack, straightening things out in the car, and goes out to wash up in the restroom. Driving down Route 1, she thinks of spending four days in the woods, fasting, as the Indians do. A vision comes to them from the experience, and it shows them the path they must follow in life. Usually an animal or bird is part of the vision and is adopted as that Indian's totem. It's incorporated in their name. She wants to do this. She's thought about it this winter, lying in bed at night, thinking about starting a new life, wanting guidance for a new direction. This fast may not be easy to accomplish. She's got to find a place where she's not going to meet up with people. And then there's the queasiness. She felt somewhat better today, but still in the bathroom. The room started swimming when she exerted herself. To her left, off the highway, is a winding dirt road, which she decides to explore. Rough going, some fresh tire tracks, and many old apple trees along the way. She drives for a mile through woods, and when she comes to a clearing, she parks the car and continues on foot. The area is fresh mown grass, flowers, and vegetable gardens. Oops! She can see an old man working among the pole beans. She's in someone's backyard. But another inlet leading to the gardens opens and she goes back. Mr. Shea introduces himself, tells her he is a retired railroad man. He wears one of those striped engineer hats and looks like Santa, except he hasn't got the beard. This is a beautiful area, Mr. Shea. The vegetable and the flower gardens are gorgeous. You must have worked a long time to accomplish this. I have time. This is my private corner, he tells her with a wink. And it is that. No one traveling Route 1 would suspect there's an Eden behind the woods. They chat for a while and they are silent, too. She's a bit uncomfortable, but she trusts him. They lean on the hood of his truck and she notices he is inching close to her. She doesn't know what to think of it, but she doesn't have an urge to move away. How would you feel about my camping in the woods back there? I wouldn't mind at all. I'd like to stay for four days. That's fine. Come, he motions. I'll get you some vegetables for your evening meal. 
He gets her corn and tomatoes, some cucumbers and beans. Then he takes her for a walk beyond the clearing to the woods in the back. You can get your water from that stream, he points down beneath a stone bridge where cool, dark water runs through a winding path of rocks. There are three miles of woods beyond this and then a couple of lakes, all of it uninhabited, and miles and miles of woods beyond that. He leaves them, his house being way back on Route 1. Thanks for listening. You're welcome to visit my website, loveandlou.com, where you can leave feedback in the journal blog. Among the site's many offerings is a divination page with a weekly I Ching oracle and lots of other contributions.